The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. You are listening to Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJC.com news breakdown. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our reporters and ask questions about our story. And though this may be an uncomfortable conversation for the benefit of the court and for the record, um, we're making it clear that this is not your quote, it's not the GBI's quote, this is a quote from a statement of Mr. Bryan as to what he heard Travis McMichael say prior to police arriving, correct? Very much so, yes, sir. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Breakdown and our continuing coverage of the fatal shooting of Ahmad Arbery on February 23rd near the coastal town of Brunswick, Georgia. Where to begin? When we last talked, Greg and Travis McMichael and Roddy Bryan had been arrested and charged with felony murder. At that time, Ahmad Arbery's death was front and center on the national news. Then came the videos of Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Chauvin looked so nonchalant, so uncaring, like it was just another day on the beat. All the while, horrified onlookers pleaded for him to get off of Floyd. By the time he finally did, Floyd was dead or dying. That incident lit a fuse under a nation fed up with seeing too many African Americans being killed by police. Here in Atlanta, protesters marched from Centennial Olympic Park to the state capitol on Friday, May 29th. At first, they were peaceful. Then, when marchers were on their way back to the park, things got out of control. And I think Friday for me was, it was, it was, it was heartbreaking as someone that grew up um, in Georgia, grew up in the South, loves that I'm from the South, but hates the legacy of the South to see what went down. Because I do understand the emotions of the people that are angry at the fact that they had to watch, they are watching black men die on video. Right? I don't watch the videos. I've chosen to protect myself. That's Alyssa Pointer, one of the AJC's amazing photojournalists. She's African-American, 27 years old. Her great-aunt got arrested while marching with Dr. Martin Luther King. That Friday night, when violence erupted, Alyssa had the wherewithal to climb up to the top of a parking deck across from CNN Center. From her perch, she took the iconic photo of an Atlanta police cruiser engulfed in flames, smoke, billowing into the sky. That image was published nationwide. I understand how they're feeling, but I also don't think in my, I don't, I don't understand how anger can go to demolishing 
you know, businesses. I don't understand how anger can go to looting. Mm -hmm. Watch it happen in front of me was a lot. I kept asking myself, when is this going to end? I kept saying, what is the end goal? Before Alyssa went to work that day, she saw an Instagram where someone recommended buying goggles in case the police used tear gas. She was skeptical, but she went to Target anyway and bought some, just in case. I most definitely put them on because after the first amount of tear gas, uh, they my your eyes burn, your face, your entire face burns. And I was so happy that that post came across my timeline on Instagram or I would have not been prepared. Alyssa certainly wasn't prepared for what happened the following Monday as the protests continued. With all her camera equipment on her shoulders and her AJC press credentials hanging prominently around her neck, Alyssa took photos of two women being arrested. After I took that picture, I looked up and an officer from the DNR said, you're under arrest. And I said, sir, I'm just doing my job. I'm a photojournalist with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. He said something to the tone of, I don't care you're going to be under arrest. And he, there were two other officers that came in and he said, put the zip ties on her, something along those lines. The DNR is the State Department of Natural Resources, whose officers give citations to deer poachers and unlicensed fishermen. Not exactly big city cops, but they'd been called in to help patrol the streets. So the officers had Alyssa put her arms behind her back and they zip tied her and sat her down. She kept telling them she was working press but no one appeared to be listening. Only when a local TV news reporter told the officers that Alyssa worked for the AJC did they finally take off her zip ties and release her. I can't say that I never thought that I would be in a situation where I wouldn't be listened to because of what I looked like. So I wasn't surprised, but it was just, it's not something you want to think about happening to you on the, you know, as you're covering protests because you're a member of the press. You you have the same credential that every other person, you know, that you work with or works in your outlet. If a TV journalist hadn't spoken up for her, Alyssa said, she's certain she would have landed in the city jail. So what did she do after she was finally released? You got it. She went right back to work covering the protests. She'd worked long, difficult hours dealing with large crowds, aggression, tear gas, and pepper spray. At one point, she saw one irate man screaming and yelling. In one hand, he held a liquor bottle, and the other, a handgun. So what did she volunteer to do just three days later? She drove down to Brunswick to cover the hearing in the Arbery case. Alyssa arrived outside the courthouse shortly before the hearing began. A light rain was falling. Her focus, the crowd that had gathered outside. Please don't kill my children. I can't breathe. Protect blacks, please. Yo, help us. People were just really um, excited about what was going on. There were babies there. There were people in their 70s there that were just there to show support for the family. And they were listening to the um, preliminary hearings on their phones. And there was a little reaction when some things would come up. The preliminary hearing was held Thursday, June 4th. It was presided over by Chief Magistrate Wallace Harrell. The lawyers, the judge, and the court staff sat in the courtroom wearing masks, except when they were speaking. Greg McMichael and his son Travis sat side by side in another courtroom at the Glen County Jail and watched the proceedings on a video monitor. Roddy Bryan waived his appearance. This was a probable cause hearing. The state had to present enough evidence to convince the judge 
that the prosecution of the three men was warranted. If the judge found probable cause for the arrests, the prosecution would then take the next step, seek murder indictments from the grand jury. The lead investigator on the case was the one and only witness during the day-long proceeding. I'm Special Agent Richard Dial, R-I-C-H-A-R-D. Dial is D-I-A-L. I'm Assistant Special Agent in charge with the Georgia Bureau of Investigation assigned to the Kingham Field Office, which covers Glen County. Leading Dial through his direct examination was Jesse Evans, Cobb County's Chief Deputy Assistant District Attorney. If you recall in Breakdown Season 2, Evans helped persuade a jury to convict Justin Ross Harris of the murder of his son Cooper by leaving him in his hot car to die. You may also remember that, in his preliminary hearing, Harris was instantly transformed into a sleazy creep with the shocking revelations of his sexting numerous women, including underage girls. In the Arbery case, it's safe to say the preliminary hearing shredded what remained of the reputations of at least two of the three defendants, and you'll soon see why. Special Agent Dial started off by telling the court about the young, unarmed African-American man who was shot down on February 23rd. His name was Ahmad Aubrey. He was 25 years of age. He was a resident here in Brunswick, Georgia. He lived at 140 Boykin Ridge Drive at the time of his death with his mother. He was, um, and he was involved in athletics, liked play games outside. He liked to run. Uh, like to play video games. Aubrey was about two and a half miles away from his home when he was killed, Dahl said. A neighbor had called 911 after he saw Aubrey enter a house under construction on Satilla Drive. The surveillance video shows him walking around the planned vacation home. There's no sign of him taking anything. Here's Dahl offering a possible explanation for why Aubrey went inside. He was thirsty. I'm aware that the homeowner, Larry English, or, or through his attorney, has made statements concerning their speculation that um, there are water sources at the house and that could be a reason for Mr. Aubrey's entering the house. According to Dial's calculations, what transpires next takes only seven minutes. After spending just a few minutes inside the unfinished house, Aubrey continues his run. He soon passes the house of Greg McMichael. He's retired and once worked as an investigator for the Glenn County District Attorney's Office. The 64-year-old McMichael is in his front yard working on some cushions for his boat. He recognizes Aubrey from having seen him on surveillance video at the same construction site 12 days earlier, on February the 11th. Here's Dial. Mr. Aubrey proceeds past the household. He's running down Sotilla Drive um, south. Um, Greg McMichael goes inside. According to his statement and Travis McMichael's statement, tells Travis McMichael that the guy's running down the road. They both grab their weapons. Greg McMichael arms himself with a Smith & Wesson 686 357 Magnum revolver. Travis McMichael arms himself with a Remington 870 pump 12-gauge shotgun. They then enter um, Travis McMichael's truck. Travis McMichael is driving. Greg McMichael is in the passenger seat. Prosecutor Evans then asked Dial a question he would bring up over and over again. When the defendants, uh, the McMichaels, armed themselves with this revolver and shotgun, did they make a 911 call before going after Mr. Aubrey? No, sir, they did not. So there's no 911 call initially by them as they gave chase? That's correct. Aubrey and the McMichaels then passed by Roddy Bryan's home. It turns out Bryan has a security camera pointed toward the street. Agents obtained that footage. He sees them 
trying to uh, pursue in Ahmad Aubrey. In the video, you actually see Ahmad Aubrey trying to get away. He's running backwards, the truck would move backwards, and he's moving forward. He's trying to escape at that point in the video. Brian then calls out to the McMichaels. So then he yells, you got him. Mr. Brian, his statement then goes into his residence, gets the keys to his truck, comes out and cranks up his truck with the intention of of assisting in the pursuit. At this point in time, based on our best evidence, has any 911 call been placed by either the McMichaels or the Bryan? No, none have. In the driveway, Brian's truck is pointed toward the street. He was planning to turn left to follow the action, but as he drove out, he saw Arbery had reversed course and was running back toward him. So he pulled out in front of Arbery, trying to block him in. At this point, Greg McMichael had gotten out of the cab and hopped into the truck bed. Travis McMichael decided to drive around the block and cut off Arbery at the next intersection. In the meantime, Brian told investigators he continued to pursue Arbery. He made several statements about trying to block him in and using his vehicle to try to um, stop him. Um, his statement was that Mr. Um, Arbery kept, trying, kept come, jumping out of the way and moving around the bumper and actually running down into the ditch in an attempt to avoid his truck. Brian told investigators that, at one point, he sped up because it looked like Aubrey was trying to get in the truck by grabbing at the back driver's side door. Dial noted there's a palm print on that door, but it's yet to be matched to Aubrey. Agents also found some white cotton fibers, which could have come from the white clothes Aubrey was wearing, on the truck bed and a dent in the same area. So, either Aubrey was trying to get inside Brian's truck, as Brian said, or it's possible that Brian may have struck Arbery with his truck as he tried to pin him down. At one point, Brian pulled out his phone and started taking video of Arbery as he ran through the neighborhood. Millions have now seen about 30 seconds of that footage. But Dial said, in totality, there are about three minutes of the video. During some of that time, the camera is turned down toward the floorboard while Brian maneuvers his truck up and down the road. Toward the end of the chase, however, Brian catches just about everything. You see Mr. Aubrey running down Holmes Road, going towards Satilla Drive. You see Travis McMichael's truck is parked in the road. Travis McMichael, the driver's side door is open. Travis McMichael is there. Um, it is apparent to me he is holding a firearm. His arm is raised. It's in a pointed um, position. Mr. Aubrey is running. He then apparently sees what uh, Travis Michael in front of him, then he changes direction to go around the passenger side of the vehicle. He's going around the truck. What happened after that? Travis McMichael then moved from the driver's side where he's actually standing. When you open a driver's side door, the door is at his back initially in the video and he's got the shotgun. He then positions himself around the driver's side door towards the front of the truck. Um, you see um, Mr. Aubrey running alongside the passenger side. And again, you see uh, Travis Michael has reposed himself along the front of the truck. Mr. Aubrey then comes up to a position, sees Travis McMichael, then makes a decision and turns and decides to engage Travis McMichael. As he turns and goes towards Travis McMichael, you hear a shot. Then um, you see Travis McMichael moving backwards with um, Mr. Aubrey. Um, obviously, they are engaged in a physical confrontation at this point. Um, they go off the screen. You then hear a second shot where you see blood and um, spray into the screen, a mist of it. And then they come back in to the um, view of the camera. There, um, Mr. Aubrey is striking Travis McMichael. There's a struggle going on, and then you see a or then you see a third shot occur. Um, the firearm being 
lower down like that. We see that after the third shot, you then see Mr. Aubrey get past Travis McMichael and continue running down Holmes, almost right there at the intersection, and then he falls. Aubrey suffered one shotgun wound to his chest, another to his upper left chest near his armpit, and one to his right wrist. Travis McMichael told police his first shot hit Aubrey in the chest, and Brian's video backs that up, Dahl said. After the first shot, again, um, you see a struggle between Travis McMichael and Mr. Aubrey. He was wearing a white shirt during this incident. During that struggle, you see the front of his shirt is saturated with blood. District Attorney George Barnhill, one of the first three DAs to have the case, wrote a letter to local authorities when he recused himself. He said he believed the McMichaels were justified in trying to make a citizen's arrest of Arbery because they were trying to stop a burglary in progress. But Dial tried to shoot that down, citing what Greg McMichael told police after the shooting. Um, his statement to the effect is he didn't know Mr. Aubrey had stolen anything or not, but he had a gut feeling that Mr. Aubrey may have been responsible for thefts that were in the neighborhood previously. Um, and he, he actually, I think he actually says gut, his um, instinct told him that. Also important is what Travis McMichael told Aubrey, Dahl said. Did Travis McMichael make any admissions about ordering the victim at gunpoint to try to get on the ground or anything like that? Yes, he did. Prior to the shooting? Prior to the shooting, yes. Before he wrapped it up, Evans let Dial know they were about to have an uncomfortable conversation. And it would be a conversation that would cast a harsh and highly disturbing light on the entire case. Um, understanding that and understanding that it might be a, a little uncomfortable to talk about the words because it involves a, a curse word and something else, I need to ask you about that quote. Can you please articulate for the court what Mr. Bryan said he heard Travis McMichael say prior to police arriving and after the fatal shooting? Yes, um, Mr. Bryan said that after the shooting took place, before police arrival, while Mr. Aubrey was on the ground, that he heard Travis Michael make the statement. Dial said, Travis McMichael said, effing N-word. Yeah, I know. Many people who've seen the video of the shooting, from Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden to Georgia's former Republican Attorney General Sam Owens, have called Arbery's death a modern-day lynching. I'm not going to say if it was or it wasn't. I don't know what was going through the McMichaels' minds when they set out that day, but talk about pouring gasoline on the flames. This sure did it. At the moment of Dial's testimony, Alyssa Pointer was standing outside the courthouse, Around her, protesters were following the proceedings on their cell phones. People were just really agitated um, at the fact that those words were used and were just kind of expressing their anger. And they kind of didn't have anyone to express it to, if that makes sense. So they were just kind of yelling out. Georgia, it should be noted, is one of the few states in the country without a hate crimes law. But there is a federal hate crimes law, and the U.S. Department of Justice has been conducting its own investigation of Arbery's killing. In fact, Bobby Christine, the U.S. attorney from Savannah, sat behind the Cobb prosecution team during the entire hearing. Jason Sheffield, one of Travis McMichael's lawyers, would be the first to cross-examine Dial. If you remember from the last episode, a defense lawyer's goal during a preliminary hearing is not necessarily to win it. It's to find out as much as possible about the prosecution's case. 
Through his questioning, Sheffield elicited answers from Dial that were damning to his client, such as this one. I understand um, that you have said that Mr. Bryan has put this statement coming out of the mouth of Travis McMichael, this horrible thing. In looking so far in the case, whether it's on Travis's interaction through the neighborhood Facebook page or on his phone, have you seen any other evidence that he has used that horrible N-word anywhere else? Yes, for many times. Dial gives a couple of examples. Here's one. On the Instagram post, somebody sends him, this is on January 2nd of 2020, someone sends him a video or a picture. We were not able to recover that from the phone. That's one of the reasons why I haven't searched one out for Instagram. They send that out. He says, makes the comment, that would only be better if they'd have blown that effing N-words or they'd blown that N-words head off. Here's another. But one particular one that comes to mind is he made the statement that he loved his job because he was out on a boat and there weren't any N-words anywhere. Sheffield tried to establish that his client initially believed Arbery might be armed and dangerous and that he acted in self-defense when he fired the first shotgun blast. Here's Dial. As Mr. Aubrey was coming at him, that, um, again, he'd already stated that at 30 to 40 yards away, he could tell that Mr. Aubrey was uh, going to fight. So he, as he saw Mr. Aubrey coming towards him, that uh, Mr. Aubrey squared up, that he shot him. He said that he was concerned. What does that mean, squared up? That's the word he uses. What did you understand it to mean? That as he, as he was running towards him, he squared up in like a fighting stance or something along those lines. Sheffield later asked Dial a question that seemed to backfire. It made me think it might not be a good idea to ask a person leading the murder investigation for his opinion about a critical part of the case. It's, it's your decision then as you move forward through the case that you are of the opinion that this was not self-defense by Mr. McMichael. I don't believe it was self-defense by Mr. McMichael. I believe it was self-defense by Mr. Aubrey. Yes, I believe Mr. Aubrey was being pursued, and he ran until he couldn't run anymore, and it was turning back to a man with a shotgun, or or fight with his bare hands against the man with the shotgun, and he chose to fight. And not to run through a side yard, or not to run through another yard, or anything like that. I think his thing was to, I believe Mr. Aubrey's decision was to just try to get away. When he felt like he could not escape, Frank Hogue, who represents Greg McMichael, was up next. His focus was on the exact wording of the arrest warrant taken out against his client. It says Greg McMichael aided and abetted Travis McMichael when Travis pointed and discharged the shotgun, which is a deadly weapon and capable of causing death or serious bodily injury, at Ahmad Arbery. The plain reading of that sentence, taken down to a logical, practical level, makes it seem as if Greg McMichael had to be standing behind his son and helping him raise and fire the shotgun, or that Greg McMichael knew beforehand what was going to happen. But Dial said it was Greg McMichael who initiated the chase and got his son involved. They armed up, hopped in the truck, and finally wound up stopped in the middle of the road, waiting for Arbery to run up to them. Hogue countered with this. Okay, I got all that. You're not saying, though, are you, Agent Dial, that when Greg McMichael did all of those things you just described leading up to the shooting, that he did all of those things to assist Travis McMichael, knowing that he was going to point and discharge his shotgun during all of that time that you just described? You're not saying that. I, I'm, I'm saying that Greg McMichael knew that Travis McMichael had a shotgun. I do not believe that Greg McMichael thought that Travis McMichael had a shotgun 
for decorative purposes or that he had it for the purposes that he may use it. And that's what Rick McMichael knew when he engaged in those acts. Do you take the position that he knew that Travis McMichael would indeed point and discharge that firearm that day when he did all those previous things? I, I think he knew it would be a distinct possibility. Otherwise, why would Travis McMichael have the shotgun when he gets in the car? Okay. I think it's a foreseeable consequence of what happened. Kevin Goff, who represents Brian, had the final crack at Dial. It was mid-afternoon, and by now, Dial was leaning back in his chair and rocking back and forth. And let's put it this way. Goff has his own peculiar way in a courtroom. He's certainly courteous, but he also makes statements and asks questions that seem to come out of left field. And he, like Sheffield before him, asked Dial for his opinion. And I don't think he gets the answer he was looking for. The question... Did racial bias play a role in Brian's decision-making on February 23rd? As far as my opinion of motivation and reasons behind actions? Well, I'll take your opinion first. Yes, sir, it did. You believe it did? Yes, sir. Okay. Well, following up on your opinion, uh, is there any evidence that race played a role in the actions of Roddy Bryan on 223-20? There's evidence that of Roddy Bryan's racist attitude in his communications. Okay. And from that, I extrapolate the reason why he made assumptions he did that day of what was occurring. He saw a man running down the road with a truck following him, and I believe he made certain assumptions that were at least in part based upon his racial bias. Dial gave an example. There were various comments that Mr. Bryan made concerning um, race using racial derogative terms, statements that he made in reference to I think he was at an airport, and he said, it's great, there's not as many, and he used a racial term um, up here. Um, stuff that I felt showed his viewpoint and bias that I believe, based upon my opinion, played a role in how he interpreted what he saw that day and <coughs> the actions he took. I was made aware of several that I personally found very disturbing concerning the references that were made. That prompted Goff to say this. Of course, those communications are also not, however regrettable and unfortunate, not all that uncommon in the South, are they? Seriously? Was he somehow trying to condone it? Here's Dial's response. I, I will tell you, sir, there were terms that he used that I've never encountered before in my experience for racial term he used. Later, Goff suggested Arbery had tried to carjack Brian's truck when Brian said he tried to open a driver's side door. Dial responded that whatever Arbery had tried to do, it didn't seem to frighten Brian. I know he testified that he felt that Mr. Arbery was going to get into the in his vehicle, but I also know that he also continued to pursue Mr. Arbery after that event. Goff then said Brian told police he thought Arbery looked angry. I can't figure out what in the world Goff was trying to do next with this question. Even Dial was incredulous. If a bunch of white people that you didn't know were chasing you around, chasing you around with cars and guns, you might have reason to be mad, right? Are you talking about me or Mr. Albert? Any young black man in South Georgia being chased by a bunch of white guys with guns would have reason to be mad, wouldn't it? Judge Harold told Dial he didn't have to answer. It wasn't a proper question, the judge said. Before Dial stepped down, Jesse Evans had a few follow-up questions. He got Dial to stand up and, using a pointer, 
for a shotgun, the agent described what he saw on enhanced video from Brian's cell phone. On the video, which if you focus on Travis McMichael's arms, you see the arms with a rifle, you often have your arm extended, front arm, and that's what I saw. This is what I would refer as a firing stance. This arm is extended out holding a rifle. Is that prior to any contact that you see between Mr. Physical contact between Mr. Arbery and, and Travis McMichael? Very much so, yes, sir. After Dial finally stepped down from the stand, Judge Harrell heard arguments. Sheffield's was brief. It briefly appears that the history of issues in the neighborhood is what caused Travis McMichael to seek to stop and talk with Mr. Arbery. That escalated. Mr. Arbery running at him in an aggressive way that caused Travis McMichael to fear for his safety. Mr. Travis McMichael used self-defense when he was attacked by Mr. Arbery. Therefore, I ask that you not bind over the warrants on aggravated assault and felony murder. For his part, Hogue focused on the wording of the arrest warrants. Thus, the question comes down, comes down to the intent behind Greg McMichael's actions at the moment the shooting occurred. So while we may agree that leaving his home that day with a firearm may not have been a very good idea, for the reasons that he did it though, he was trying to intercept someone. He had a thought, a feeling, a gut instinct, I think was Agent Dial's word, but we've heard, actually, he had some visual evidence to believe this may be a person that's, that's been here before that I want to stop and question what happened to police question. So for Greg McMichael, uh, aiding and abetting, um, the, the, the evidence should not be sufficient to carry over these warrants. In his closing, Goff was, well, Goff. Here's what he said about his client, Roddy Bryan. Whatever was going on before, he doesn't know. Whatever was going on with the McMichaels and Ahmad Arbery, he minds his own business on his front porch. Uh, he doesn't know by following back a truck that he does. And he does, with all due respect, what any patriotic American citizen would have done under the same circumstances. Goff also contended there was no way Brian could try to falsely imprison Arbery with his truck, and Brian had no way of knowing what the McMichaels were doing was illegal. It's been said in the book of Amos, which some, some people consider the Bible instructive, some don't. The book of Amos says, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And I fully understand the consequences for the community and for the court of dismissing the charge against Mr. Brian. And I'm so glad that I'm sitting here and that I'm not in your shoes. But that is the result that justice demands in this case. And that's what we're asking for, nothing less. Jesse Evans closed with a flourish. On February the 23rd of 2020, victim Ahmad Arbery was chased, hunted down, and ultimately executed at the hands of these men. He was on a run on a public roadway in a public subdivision. He was defenseless and he was unarmed. Arbery, the evidence has shown, was shot down, unarmed in broad daylight in this quiet neighborhood. Evans said he welcomes the opportunity at a later date to combat Travis McMichael's contention he acted in self-defense 
As for Greg McMichael's decision to get his gun and pursue Arbery through the neighborhood. There's um, no evidence that these defendants saw a burglary, saw any crime, had any subjective belief or even a hunch by these civilians that would authorize their choices that they made to chase after and ultimately gun down this unarmed victim in the middle of the street. As for Goff's arguments. Well, regarding the arguments that Mr. Bryan has made, that any American would have done what he did, um, those are asinine assertions. Any American would pick up the phone and call 911. We heard a biblical quote just a minute ago. I got one. How about love the neighbor? And make no mistake about it, Mr. Arbor was tormented. He was hunted. He was targeted. And these men admitted that. You can't turn around and use the words self-defense and justification as some sort of magic talisman to make those facts disappear. Ahmad had zero obligation to stop in the face of these two pursuing pickup trucks. Lund, one with two armed non-law enforcement civilians who literally chased them through a public neighborhood and a public roadway and gunned them down in broad daylight. Judge Harold didn't take a recess before issuing his decision. He'd already made up his mind. The case of the state of Georgia versus Travis James McMichael will be bound over to Superior Court of Bill County, Georgia. The case of the state of Georgia versus Gregory John McMichael will be bound over to Superior Court of Bill County, Georgia. This case of Taylor, Georgia versus William Robert Brown will be bound over to the Glen County Superior Court. All of these are bound over on all charges After the hearing later that afternoon, two groups of protesters in Brunswick merged and marched through the city. They walked down the street in front of a huge mural of Arbery, and they went through the city's housing projects. Right in the thick of it, of course, was my colleague, Alyssa Pointer. Um, so that was really uh, impactful, I think. It was really good to see them coming together. And they were more, I would say, happy about the end result than they were angry. There was one more refreshing aspect to the march, she said. It was, it was exciting um, and it was peaceful. They did say a lot of things about, let's show Atlanta how to you know, peacefully protest, which I thought was funny. The McMichaels and Bryan will now ask a Superior Court judge to allow them to post bond and remain free until their trial. And when Georgia's judicial emergency ends, a grand jury will convene in Glenn County to consider indictments against the three men. I must say, this preliminary hearing raises a lot, and I mean a lot, of questions, legally speaking. So, of course, you better believe it. We'll be back. Until next time, thanks so very much for listening. You've been listening to Breakdown, hosted and narrated by Bill Rankin, produced by Bria Felician and Bill Rankin, edited by Jennifer Brett, sound designed by Bria Felician. Special thanks to Alyssa Pointer, Kevin Riley, Sean McIntosh, Leroy Chapman, Monica Richardson, and Pete Corson. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous seven seasons of Breakdown. And please, during this pandemic, use social distancing and wear a mask when you're out in public.
Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.